All right, tonight we're going to open with a couple verses. Uh, so if you turn your Bibles to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, and uh, you know these verses, but we're going to look at them and read them, and uh, we'll turn to a couple passages, but look at uh, John chapter 3 and uh, verse 15. The Bible says that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have ever, uh, excuse me, eternal life. Verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. The world through him might be saved. Turn, if you would, to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Then I'll tell you where we're going. First Timothy chapter 2, uh, Paul admonishes Timothy to, to, to really teach this truth to the church that he pastored there, as this is a pastoral epistle, and, uh, and to pass on this concept, which is interesting because I think this is something that churches are failing to do today, and even myself in some ways, uh, and that talks about praying for authorities, praying for those who are in leadership positions. And so it starts off, I exhort therefore that first of all supplications and prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority, that we may lead quiet and peaceable lives in all godliness and holiness. And we tend to stop there. Verse 3, why, you know, this, this is still the reason why. For this is good and acceptable in God's sight, um, uh, excuse me, in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. God so loved the world. His will is that all men would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Look over at Second Peter. Second Peter, if you would. Second <clears throat> Peter, uh, chapter three. Second Peter, chapter three. Look at verse number nine. The Bible tells us, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, word, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Do you know what the word all means? Oh, you guys are smart. It takes a lot of college to unlearn that. It takes a lot of, a lot of education to unlearn what the world means. It means all. Uh, let me take you to one more passage as we get into this. Colossians. Colossians. Let's see, I believe Colossians 2. Yep. Colossians 2 and verse number 8. Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. 
in Colossians, uh, they were dealing with some, some areas. It's interesting when you look at the what's going on in the background of each of the books of the Bible. Galatians, there was a group of people called the Judaizers, and they were coming and they were trying to get these Jewish believers and now the Gentiles that have come into the congregation to go back to the Mosaic Law, to go back to some of those, those things, and really to the point of even trying to get, uh, wanting to get uh, Gentile believers to be circumcised and follow certain aspects of the Mosaic Law. And, uh, and so... Paul was addressing that because they basically got brought to the level of making it really even a part of the gospel. And that's why he says, who has, who has tricked you, who has beguiled you to, to, to basically depart from the gospel of grace and fall in and, and buy into this other gospel, which is no gospel. And, uh, and, and you know, that's where we see the phrase fallen from grace. That doesn't mean they lost their salvation. It means they fell away from the grace, uh, the, the, the doctrine of grace. And, uh, and so in Colossians, a little bit different group that, that he's dealing with, he's dealing with uh, the Gnostics there in the first century. These people, uh, the word Gnostic is a Greek word for knowledge. And it's the idea that uh, uh, everything was spiritual, everything was mystical, and it was kind of this other way. It was philosophy, it was vain deceit. So that's kind of the backdrop of Colossians. These people are coming in and trying to trick things. Today, we have kind of a conglomerate of all these different um, uh, avenues that we are battling. And for the next couple of weeks, what I want to do is I want to bring, uh, I, was, I was reluctant to announce it this morning because I wasn't 100% sure if this is where I want to go, but it's been on my heart for a while. So we're going to go there. But we're going to address the doctrine, the false doctrine, I will boldly say, of Calvinism. Of Calvinism. Um, and uh, I'm going to say this to you. For those of you who know where, where I'm going, you'll get this. If not, you'll get it by the end of the series. There are no tulips in the Bible. There are no tulips in the Bible. In fact, tulip is uh, probably a bad, uh, a bad acronym to describe Calvinism. I think a daisy is even better. You say, why? What do you do with daisies? God loves you. He loves you not. He loves you. He loves you not. You want to summarize Calvinism is basically that. But we're going to dive into it a little bit. And tonight I want to give you somewhat of an overview of Calvinism. Well, we looked at a couple of these verses. And when you put these together, you cannot escape the fact that God's heart is for mankind, that he wants to save everyone, that the sacrifice of Christ was sufficient. In fact, we can, boy, we can just start going verse after verse after verse. First John uh, chapter 2, uh, for Christ is the propitiation for our sins, but not our sins only, but the sins of the whole world. When you say our sins and also this other group being the world, who could the our be and who could the world be? That's got to be believers and lost. World there is, is, yeah, the lost. For God so loved the world. Who are we talking about? We're talking about everybody, right? If you talk to a Calvinist and ask them, you know, they, they, they love to go to John 3.16 because it's just such an obvious affront on Calvinism. So they like to go there and they like to tell you what God really meant. By the way, beware of anyone who tries to tell you what God really meant. <laughs> okay, Holy Spirit number two. God meant the world of the elect. I'm sorry, it doesn't say that. It doesn't say that. So uh, let's ask God's help as we uh, get into a little bit of introduction tonight. And uh, I hope it will be a blessing to us. Father, we thank you for this time tonight. Thank you for these that are here this evening. And I pray, Lord, that you'd help us as we uh, unpack this the next few weeks and look at what does the Bible actually say. And especially as we look to uh, the, the doctrine of soteriology and uh, salvation, what was your method, your plan for salvation? Who was salvation offered to? And, uh, and why is this topic so important today? I pray that you'd help us, Lord, in these uh, next few moments. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as we look at this, really, what is Calvinism? Calvinism is a, is a systematized uh, approach to soteriology, the, the doctrine of salvation. 
And, uh, and, and what it is, is it's a, a star by a man named John Calvin and uh, named after him. And we'll get to the life uh, and the person of John Calvin in just a minute. But, uh, but, but basically, he put together this teaching. And by the way, if you struggle with insomnia, if you have trouble falling asleep, get John Calvin's Institutes and read them. It'll cure you very quickly. Okay? Uh, they're dry. They're boring. Uh, they're, 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 he's one of those guys that, that, uh, that goes deep and comes up empty. I mean, that's just kind of what you come across. There's some, some, some deep, deep thought in there, but what are we getting to? Um, so I'm going to just kind of get into, I might sound, seem kind of all over the place cause I am tonight. Uh, I don't have any notes. I just want to kind of share with you a little bit. Um, I just wrote down a couple of those references I wanted to bring out tonight. Well, we will go to a passage in Romans in just a, a few moments, but, um, but what is Calvinism? I mentioned tulip. How many of you are familiar with TULIP theology, the acronym? Okay, I don't know if I have to unpack it too much. Okay, so it's it's uh, in, in the next several weeks, we will unpack each of the letters of TULIP. But, um, but what's interesting is you'll find this with Calvinists and even, uh, well, I'll, I'll get into that in just a minute. TULIP theology is this, okay, uh, spelling out the word TULIP. T stands for, anybody know? Total depravity of man. Okay, U stands for? You guys are scared to have the wrong answer. Unconditional election. Okay. L stands for limited atonement. Okay. Uh, the I stands for irresistible grace. And I love this. The last one, the T stands for, I'm sorry, the P stands for perseverance of the saints. Okay. What's interesting about those is the first four, it's all God, all God, all God, all God. The last one is all man. But we'll get into that in just a minute. Uh, by the way, from, from which stems Lordship Salvation, okay? Um, which we talked about a little bit a couple weeks ago. Um, and so, so as we get into this, what's interesting about Calvinists and Calvinism is there's a spectrum on how Calvinist you are. Have you ever heard of the term hyper-Calvinist? That's a Calvinist on a lot of sugar. He's a hyper-Calvinist, uh, but he takes things to the nth degree. What, what, what real Calvinism is, if you're true to the system of theology, and you can find this actually in John Calvin's writings, is that God becomes the ultimate author of sin. It's fatalism. It's everything that will come to pass, and you can find this not only in his writings, but you can find this in the Westminster Confession, uh, which, is, uh, which is the primary document for uh, Presbyterians and really Calvinists. Um, um, and that is everything that comes to pass was by God's divine decree is really what it comes down to. Now think on that for a minute. Think on that as you're watching the nightly news. Think on that as you, as you, you, you consider uh, things that, that, that happen in life, unjust things that happen in life. Well, God did that. And don't we see it all the time when there's a tsunami? An earthquake, those kinds of things. Well, it, where did it, where was God? We love you know the, the atheists love to take that. We we get a, we get another point for our argument. Where was God? Well, the Calvinists will say God did that. I would say we live in a sin cursed world. We ask God to do that <laughs> in a sense. But think about this now. God made Adolf Hitler kill all those Jews. It was God's will. Nothing would happen apart from God's will. Does that, does that sit a little uneasy with you? By the way, bear with me if I get a little excited in this series. 
I hate debating Calvinists because I have a hard time keeping a clear head because they're attacking the character of my God. It's tough. It's tough to be level-headed with this. By the way, Calvinists love to argue. But what you're going to find is that they will use straw man arguments. Straw man arguments over and over again. So one of the things that, that they approach is this, uh, one of the very first tactics you'll run into with a Calvinist is the false dichotomy. The false dichotomy is this. Either you're a Calvinist or you're a what? Arminian. Uh, there's a great video I saw uh, that, uh, that, that expresses how Arminianism is a degree of Calvinism. You know, the two sides of the same coin. Arminianism it teaches that God is unable to save the whole world. Calvinism teaches that God is unwilling to save the whole world. So when you have this, far, this spectrum, if you have Calvinism on one end and Arminianism on the other end, basically the idea is this. You have to be somewhere on this spectrum. Can I just say, don't put theology in a box? Can we just be biblical about this whole thing? Okay. So, so what, what, what you tend to do, because it's a spectrum, and if you can buy into that argument, they have you. They have you. In Arminianism, it's all about the will of man. It's all about us. You know, and by the way, uh, Arminianists believe they can lose their salvation. Arminius, um, so who, who are Arminius? Um, uh, Wesleyan churches, um, um, many Methodist churches, kind of that branch, who are Calvinists. The strongest Calvinists are the Presbyterians. They're kind of the, uh, the, the main group that followed. But I would just want to say this. Why are we teaching on this then? Because we're not Methodists. We're not our, uh, um, uh, Presbyterian. We're not any of these groups. Because Baptists are probably the fastest growing group of Calvinists these days. The Southern Baptist Convention is, uh, is uh, that's probably becoming the predominant theology. You have really two branches that are happening in the Southern Baptist Convention right now. <clears throat> you have the emergent church on one side, and you have Calvinism on the other side. And uh, what is the attraction to Calvinism? What is the draw? Um, I, told, I asked you to bear with me as I, as I, I, don't, I don't have notes. I'm just kind of sharing with you some things right now. But, uh, you know, uh, I want to get back to that spectrum thing. Because of that, a lot of people say this. Well, I am a one-point Calvinist, or a two-point, or a three-point, or a four-point, or a five-point Calvinist. What they're saying is this, that you kind of have liberty to find where you land on that spectrum. Okay, And so, uh, so if you're going to put me in a box of Arminian versus Calvinist, here's what I would say to you. I'm not an Arminian. I am a zero-point Calvinist. Uh, okay. Well, Charles Spurgeon... That's what they love to point out, because he, he's, he's one of ours. He was a Baptist. Charles Spurgeon was a Calvinist, because in those days, you had two choices. You're Catholic or you're Calvinist. When you read Spurgeon's writings, maybe I'll, I'll share with you uh, some quotes from him, you can refute Calvinism with Charles Spurgeon quotes. Charles, Spur Charles Spurgeon, I think, struggled with it, because on one hand, he, he liked talking about the grace of God and the sovereignty of God, and, uh, and, and from the Calvinistic perspective... That makes you non-evangelistic. But Charles Spurgeon could not get past his need to share the gospel with the lost. He was very evangelistic. Um, in fact, he wrote a wonderful book called, I think it's called The Soul Winner uh, by Charles Spurgeon. A great book on soul winning, on being a, uh, they called it personal work, on, uh, on being a, a soul winner. But anyways, um, where was I going next? I... I I interrupted myself because I wanted to finish one thought. Um, so here's a, uh, uh, oh yeah, why, why, why is Calvinism 
you know, what does, why do, are people drawn to it? I'll tell you what. Pride, it appeals to the intellect. People are drawn to the intellectualism aspect of it. Because what it does is, have you ever, you ever listened to somebody, maybe a professor, and, uh, and their, their reasoning is just maddening, right? They bring you into all these loop-de-loops and then, you know, about whatever topic. And then to get you from point A to point B, they try to get you there. <laughs> How many of you are familiar with um, uh, the, it was the internet, um, uh, it kind of went viral back in the early days of YouTube and stuff. Um, uh, what was it called? Um, parkour. How many are familiar with parkour? Doing tricks and stuff, jumping off walls and whatnot. The objective of parkour is to get from point A to point B in the most creative way possible. Some people do that with theology, right? Trying to get you from point A to point B in the most creative way possible. So they're doing all these vocal gymnastics. And, and you're like, why can't you have just said X, Y, Z? Why can't you just say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believed in him should not perish but have everlasting life? Well, let me tell you what it all really means, right? For God means this. So loved means this. And, and, and they, they take you on this, this wild goose chase to get to their end. All right, so it appeals to the intellect, but think about this now. Think about what creates the need for more intellect, for more um, teaching. I'll tell you what it is. It's shallow preaching. One of the reasons why I'm so big on expository preaching, by the way, a lot of independent Baptists are very critical of expository preaching. Um, Jack Hiles. I don't even know who Jack Hiles is, was. He uh, was very critical of, uh, of, uh, of exegetical preaching. You say, well, what's exegetical preaching? It's going into the scriptures and drawing from the scriptures what the Bible says. So the alternative is taking a preconceived idea and going to the scriptures, Jesus. Uh, and uh, and reading into the scriptures with a preconceived thought, trying to trying to prove your point. So it's kind of like this: Here's what I want to preach on today, X, Y, and Z. Fill in the blank. Now I'm going to go find some proof text to support my thesis. That is lazy preaching. That is preaching with an agenda. It's soapbox preaching, is what it is. Okay. And uh, unless you think is not what you're doing right now, no, I'm I'm hoping to educate you a little bit tonight. My next, few seri- uh, my next few messages will not be expository in that sense. But, uh, but what's the alternative? The alternative is taking the Scriptures line by line and telling you exactly what it says and, and drawing from it. See, we already have people walking out because they don't like expository preaching. Can't handle it. So think about this now. What are some of the common topics you just hear in your average independent Baptist church? Okay, gospel, and that's, I'm not going to criticize that. Separation, standards, external standards, King James Bible, um, modesty, music. And by the way, those things, they're good, but if that's all you ever get, are you going to grow? No. So you have people starving for something. That's why when the Jehovah's Witness knocks on your door and says, hey, we'd like to have some Bible studies. You say, good, because I'm not getting any from my church. And they haven't taught me what to believe. Or why, here's the key, why we believe what we believe. They told me what to believe, but they haven't told me why to believe. 
And so Calvinist comes along, and let me just tell you, John MacArthur, John Piper, uh, James White, incredibly gifted orators. Boy, it sounds good. And they're actually teaching. One of the best expositors in our generation is John MacArthur. I'm going to tell you what the problem is in a minute. But you start hearing that, and you're thinking, wow, I don't get that in my church. This is starting to make, you know, and, and they put it in such a way that it makes sense. They've systematized it in such a way. So they take this verse here, and this verse here, and this verse here. Yeah, look, look, look at Hebrews real quick. I love this passage. In Hebrews, uh, Hebrews uh, 4. It's all right tonight. I'm just going to have a little bit of a conversation with you, a little discussion as we look at this. <clears throat> I'm sorry, Hebrews 5, towards the end of Hebrews 5. I believe it's the Apostle Paul who wrote Hebrews. Um, there's some debate on who the author is. It really doesn't matter at this point. Um, but he's writing to, who's the book of Hebrews written to? The Jews. And uh, by this point, should the Jews be leading the way? Absolutely, right? But unfortunately, God did not uh, entrust them with the light of the gospel. Blindness in part has come to Israel. Who did God give the light of the gospel to? To the church. To the church, right? So what does what the author of Hebrews say to them in verse number 12? Hebrews 5, verse number 12. For in the time ye ought to be teachers, they should have understood these things, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as need of milk and not of strong meat. So he tells them, you guys, because you're not getting it, we have to go back to the basics. We have to give you uh, milk instead of meat. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness. By the way, what are they unskillful in? The word of righteousness. Not the works of righteousness. The word of righteousness is so important. For he is a babe. Verse 14. But strong meat belongeth to them who are full age, even those who by reason of use, here's where the works come in, have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So you must learn and get good in the word, practice it in a real life application, and then what happens? You grow in discernment. You know what we do? We skip the word and we go straight to the works. And we say, you got to do this, got to do this, got to do this, got to do this. And guess what? We have no discernment because we're not rooted in the word. How many people have made a profession of faith that was not rooted in the word? What happens when that takes place? They doubt their salvation because it's not rooted in the word of God. It's rooted in the word of the soul winner. So, so what has happened is we have these services, we have this environment where, you know, it's just kind of these few things we're teaching on. And, uh, and then we have these cheap prayers, one, two, three, say this prayer with me. We're not even rooting their salvation in the scriptures. And people are hungry. They're thinking, there's got to be more. There's something just lacking when a church is bragging. They had 4,000 people come to Christ that year, and they're running 10. Something's wrong here. So what happens? People are looking. There's got to be something else out there. There's got. You know what? Maybe... Maybe God only decreed for some of those to actually get it. Maybe in the wisdom of God that we don't understand. I brought you here because of this. Look at the, the thought continues. By the way, the, the chapter of division is not inspired. The thought continues. Therefore, leaving the first principles of the doctrine of Christ. What are the first principles of the doctrine of Christ? How does somebody get saved? 
If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart, God raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. There's the doctrines of Christ. Leaving behind uh, the first the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on to perfection or maturity. That's what he's saying to them. You guys need to be mature by now. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works. When you get saved, what are you repenting of? Dead works. Okay? Uh, uh, and of faith toward God. Folks, that's salvation. Repentance towards God, faith toward Jesus Christ. I'm repenting of dead works. I'm trusting in the living God. Doctrine of baptism. What do you do after you get saved? Okay, thank you. <laughs> One's paying attention. You get baptized. And of the laying on of hands. That was, uh, that was a, a really a first century thing. We can get into that another time. And the resurrection of the dead um, and the eternal judgment. What, what's, what's the next on the list uh, for, uh, pro prophetically for us? We have the rapture coming up. What happens after we die? There's going to be a resurrection of the dead, right? And so think about this. Think about your average independent Baptist church. What are they preaching on? Doctrine of Christ, baptisms, uh, future judgment, Judgment seat of Christ, the where I throne judgment, right? Depending on which side of the, the, the thing you're on. I mean, it's these things. And then he says, let's li leave these things and go on to perfection or maturity. And then he goes on and he says, for this we will do, we will talk on these things if God permit. The idea is we need to go on to perfection and quit hanging out in the milk and get deeper. So when there's a void there, we're not teaching on these things. Or like one person once told me, uh, many of you in this room, I think, know the guy. I had lunch with him, and he said, uh, he said, brother, it feels like I've been in kindergarten for 30 years. I was like, man, that's, a, that's quite a statement, to be in the same church for 30 years and it feels like you're still in kindergarten. What are we doing here? And uh, he says we must go on to perfection. See, it's very easy in that environment to say, man, is there something else? Can somebody just teach me this book? Well, let me tell you, brother. You know which denomination probably has written the most books? Everyone take a guess. Uh, okay, let's say Christian denominations. Let's start with that. Lutherans have written a lot. I think Presbyterians have probably written the most. They're the ones that are biggest on starting schools and educating and all that kind of stuff. They're the, Cal they're the strongest Calvinists. What's interesting also is, have you ever been to a Presbyterian church? Anybody here? You find they're all dying. Calvinism kills. We can tell you a story of a church that's closing here in town that went Calvinist. Baptist church, they went Calvinist, and they're closing their doors. Why? Because it's a front on the gospel. There's no passion for souls. Because really, Isaiah, it doesn't matter if I witness to you or not. If God wills you to be saved, you're going to be saved. If God wills you to be damned, you're going to be damned. It's all God. Didn't we look at these passages? They didn't look at those passages. I like what one guy said. There's a, there's a great Bible teacher who's really unpacks Calvinism so well. If his videos were shorter, I'd probably play one for you, but his average uh, Bible study on YouTube is about two hours long. And so <laughs> it's like, just get to the point. You know, he's worse than I am. But anyways, um, um, 
But, uh, but he said this statement that I just love, and that is this. Calvinism and context, context excuse me, can never coexist. Calvinism and context. Every single verse a Calvinist will bring up, when you plug it into his context, you will find it says something different than what they say it says. A famous one, Romans 9. Well, Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I hated. And they say, see, God chose to love one and hate the other. And that's what he does with us. But obviously you have not read Romans 9, the whole chapter, or 10, or 11. The same thing with many of these passages, or they got to have, have to twist it and whatnot. And so you say, what, what is the big deal? Folks, the big deal is this. <clears throat> You're going to miss the whole heart of God. That God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. We'll, do, we'll get into the tulip theology and why I believe every single one of the points are wrong. But the total depravity of man is that God, uh, that man is unable at all to even approach God until God regenerates them. And by the way, it puts salvation prior to conversion. Total depravity of man. Uh, the uh, um, what was the you again? My mind just went blank. Unconditional uh, election, and that is that God has chosen unconditionally who will be saved and who will will be condemned. Uh, I could, you could say this, arbitrary election, unconditional election, limited atonement. That is, the blood of Christ is only for those who God has chosen, the elect. We'll get into the elect, by the way. God has only chosen, uh, the, the, the blood is only good for the elect, not for everybody. So John was wrong in, in 1 John 2. Um, irresistible grace. Uh, and that is when God ex uh, um, extends His grace to you, you cannot resist it. That's a fun one, by the way, because so many passages of Scripture are coming to mind right now. I think one of the very first times we saw somebody resist God's grace was, uh, was back in Genesis with, um, with Cain and Abel. How many chances did God give Cain? How many times did God extend His grace to Cain? And He says no. You bet we can resist the grace of God. In fact, in Hebrews it says we can even fail the grace of God. That's interesting. And then unconditional election, only those who were really, I'm, I'm sorry, um, perseverance, thank you, perseverance of the saints, only those who are really saved will persevere till the end. By the way, there are a lot of Baptists that say, well, I believe point one and point five. And, uh, and so, so, so we'll unpack that a little bit um, um, over the next couple of weeks. Let me uh, share with you just uh, briefly. Uh, well, uh, let's get to this. Look at, look at Romans 5. Let me get some Bible in here. And uh, then I'll share with you a little bit about who John Calvin was, and then we'll, we'll wrap this up. Look at Romans 5. I like this. Romans 5, look at verse number 15. says, But not as the offense, all, so also is the free gift. Talking about salvation. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God um, and the gift of grace, which is by one man, 
Jesus Christ hath had uh, uh, abounded unto many. So it says this: uh, for for if through the offense of one man many be dead, who's the one man that caused many to be dead? Adam. And then it tells us who the other man is that many can be alive. Okay, hath abounded unto many, and that is Jesus Christ. Verse sixteen. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the free gift. For the judgment was by one man, uh, one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. So, so in other words, it says this one man sinned, causing condemnation. Here's the gift. The gift is, uh, is even though there are many offenses, this one man had purchased justification, had allowed justification. Verse 17. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Therefore, look at verse 18. As by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Let me ask you this question. How many did judgment come upon to condemnation? All men. What does all men mean? Help me, please. Everyone. Uh, everyone in the world? Or just everyone who has been been purposed to be condemned? Everyone in the world. Okay. Keep that definition in mind. Even so, by the righteousness of one man, Jesus Christ, the free gift came upon, same word, all men. You know, even in the Greek, it's the same word? Unto justification of life. I heard of a guy debating a Calvinist, and he brought that up, and he said, I just want yes or no questions, and he was asking questions along this passage. And he came to this, and he said, he said, uh, uh, he read the first part of verse 18. He said, he said, who is all men there? Condemnation. They love to talk about the condemnation of all men. He says, well, that's everybody. That's everybody. Okay, good. And then he reads the last part, and he says, who's the all men here for justification? Same verse. And uh, the moderator said, all right, we're going to end the debate now. And he said, that's all right. My point got out. <laughs> My point got out. And uh, uh, in fact, I think that puts a nail in the coffin, so to speak, when the moderator says, all right, we're done here. Um, when there's an agenda like that. So who is John Calvin? Uh, by, by the way, when we talk about this, and we'll, we'll get into this, so many words have been hijacked by Calvinism. When you buy into Calvinism, here's what you find. That becomes the lens by which you view all texts of Scripture. Yeah. Everywhere you go is Calvinism, Calvinism, Calvin, everywhere you go. I've seen the same thing happen with extreme charismatics. Everything they find in Scripture becomes... Um, uh, becomes a symbol or an allegory to try to back what they were saying. And uh, I saw this one, uh, I, I was reading this one by, um, uh, what's the guy's name? Um, he was one of the old TV evangelists. Um, no, not Oral Roberts. Um, by the way, Oral Roberts got his theology corrected uh, this last week. That's a bad joke. Yeah, he passed away. Um, he got his theology corrected. Um, <laughs> um, I'm trying to think of the guy's name. Um, uh, Swagger. Jimmy Swagger. So he wrote a book, and he has a weird view uh, about salvation in the actual image or symbol of the cross itself and, and kind of really spiritualizes this aspect of the cross. So there was a charismatic uh, lady that said, would you please read this book? And I'd been kind of working with her a little bit. And... Um, and and uh, so yeah, yeah, I'll read it. And I kind of was thumbing through it, and I was reading this passage. And he went to Moses and the Red Sea, and he was doing all this stuff to try to really in type prove this point of the of the 
filling and the power, the outpouring of the Holy Ghost, bringing about all these signs and wonders and all this kind of stuff. I was like, boy, are you stretching here, making this leap to Pentecost and and uh, and the, the the Red Sea? I mean, he was just all over the place, and folks. That's that's what I'm talking about. Ace of Jesus, reading into the text, what exactly you want to kind of find there. And uh, folks, when we start doing that, we can make the Bible say whatever we want. Do you know that? I mean, anything. Jim Jones. How many of you know who Jim Jones was? Okay, the People's Church. Uh, by the way, you want to start a cult, go to California and get some people to follow you. It'll work. Um, <laughs> um, you know, he was using the Bible. And it led all those people to commit mass suicide. I could, I could show you from the Bible where it talks about how Judas, you know, he went out and hanged himself. And Jesus commands us to go and do that likewise. And then he further emphasizes it by saying, what thou do is do quickly. And we've now pieced together several verses from the mouth of Jesus and say we should go do the same thing. See why context is important? Okay. Now that's a joke, but folks, we do that. People do that. And that's what, that's what Calvinism tends to do. And so um, where was I going with that? Thank you, Carrie. <laughs> so who was John Calvin? John Calvin, um, his father was, uh, uh, worked for the Catholic Church and was an assistant to one of the high bishops, and was very much involved. John Calvin was put on the Catholic payroll at age 12. 12. He was a brilliant young man. And, uh, and he was on his way studying for the priesthood until something happened in John Calvin's life. His father was excommunicated from the Catholic Church. That kind of shook him a little bit. He was training to become a, a, a clergy member, of the Catholic Church, and his, uh, and his father encouraged him to drop out of that and go and study law. And so he did that, and he studied law. And he became he started um, around that time, started getting his hands on a lot of the writings of Martin Luther. Martin Luther was the German reformer. And, uh, and, he, and so he was reading a lot, kind of becoming, if you would, a disciple of Martin Luther. One of the greatest influences in John Calvin's life was the teachings of, of, of uh, Augustine. Now, Augustine, one of the church fathers, so to speak, in the, I believe, the fourth century, uh, Augustine, he was the one that really is made popular, which is still popular today, the idea that the church is the kingdom. The church is the kingdom. And, um, and, and a lot of things that have spill, uh, come from there. But uh, uh, he cited Augustine many, many times in his, in his institutes. And so, so here's Calvin. What's interesting is this. Through, uh, through Luther's writings... And him leaving the Catholic Church, he had completed his institutes in about a two-year period. Now, if, in fact, he got saved by reading Luther's writings, folks, he's a baby Christian. And he just wrote, basically, the textbook for this whole system of theology. Now, I personally believe he never got saved. There's no record of his conversion written down. He said those things are very private and shouldn't be shared. Fell out to the Apostle Paul, right? He spoke much about his infant baptism and its ability to wash away sins. Presbyterians today baptize babies. Lutherans today baptize babies. He believed in baptismal regeneration. Now, now folks, what does the Bible tell us about any works? We can't be saved by works. Okay? So John Calvin became uh, the, the mighty Protestant leader. And here's, 
Here's how he learned about grace, or how he expressed grace. By the way, grace received will always be grace expressed. Those who have received the grace of God, and let me just say it this way, those who have received the most grace of God. You say, what do you mean? Can someone receive more grace of God? Where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. Those who have received the most grace of God will be the most gracious people. So somebody opposed John Calvin about his position on the Lord's Supper. He took him out and had prepared for him a post where he was going to be burned alive at the stake. The record, the record is that when that man was being let out and saw what was prepared for him, the screech that he let out before he even got caught on fire, the screech they let out could be heard for a mile away. And he burned the guy alive for daring to disagree with him on the doctrine of the Lord's Supper. Baptists. At one point, he, uh, he had kicked out all the Baptists in the community that he was in. Uh, he would have his followers, his disciples, kill Baptists. Preferred method of killing them was by baptism. You guys like your rebaptism so much as where Baptists got their name because they rebaptized these, uh, these Catholic believers that would get saved because Catholicism was the predominant religion. And uh, he would, they would hold them under until they drowned to death. And I think to myself, how could somebody who's going around teaching salvation is by grace through faith, how can that you turn around and persecute people who believe salvation is by grace through faith? Yeah. I, I just really struggle with that. Now listen, I am very vocal and I'm very much opposed to a lot of the false churches and the false doctrines that are being taught in our own community. But I would never endorse going out and killing them. I would never even endorse going out and persecuting them. In fact, I fought to defend their, their right to believe false doctrine. Again, this even goes back to what we said this morning. Truth is not afraid of scrutiny. Truth is not afraid of being examined under a microscope. Truth welcomes it when you have nothing to hide. But what you'll find is anything like this that, that is, that is uh, um, there was a point that I was trying to remember earlier about, uh, about cults, about um, uh, you know, false groups and false teaching. Um, Somebody pray for my iPad that it turns back on. I can't get my iPad to work, so I'm going without notes tonight. <laughs> um, I can't remember what I was what I was saying with that. But anyways, uh, so so this is the character of John Calvin. I think about all these Southern Baptists that are going Calvinists, and John Calvin would not have allowed them in his church. Um, and so so what? Why is why is this dangerous? I think the proof is in the fruit. I think when we see the fruit, we examine the fruit of Calvinism, what do we find? We find it brings death to churches. It brings death. It, 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 it's all about intellectualism and pride. I remember what I was going to say. Here's the thing with cults. Okay? Calvinists are passionate about what they believe. And they want to win people. But you know what you find? You don't find them winning people to Christ. They're winning them to their side. You know what you find with cults and, and really any kind of things that go against God's way? They don't reproduce, they recruit. Think about those that have denied God's design for the family and for sexuality. Well, you're not born that way, so all you can do is recruit people. And that's why we see such a push on the young kids. That's what we see in the world side of things, because they're going, they're rebelling against God. But we all see it in, in religious side of things. 
when you fall into the cults and everything, uh, you're, what they do is they tend to go after religious people. You know who we go after based on the authority of Scripture? We're going for the lost. We're going for the, those that, that do not know Christ. Hey, if we find a religious person and they, they come to the truth and, um, and get saved, praise the Lord for that. I'm excited about that. Or, or maybe someone who, uh, uh, like myself, grew up in a church that was weak on doctrine and weak on conviction and, uh, and found a church that says, you know what? These people are standing on the scriptures and I can grow there and, uh, and I come and become a part of that. Um, you know, uh, I like what one guy said. I'm Christian by con uh, conversion, but I became a Baptist by conviction. Uh, I, I saw what the Bible had to say. And I said, you know what? That's true. And I want to be somewhere where that's exalted and that is lifted up. And, uh, you know, but you know what? I'm not out there trying to build a big church. I'm not trying to convince all these people who are in churches to leave their church. In fact, that's usually what I tell somebody when, I w when I'm witnessing. I say, hey, you know, uh, uh, you know, hey, you know, many times we try to get the small talk going before we jump into the big question. If you're to die today, you know, uh, you know, typically say something like, you know, hey, I'm from such and such church and just uh, getting to know some folks in the community. And, uh, you know, are you do you go to church anywhere? Are you part of any any group of uh, a community of faith or, or may ask it several different ways? And uh, they may say, oh, yeah, I go to the Catholic church. or I go to this, that and the other thing. Many times I'll say this. All right. Well, that's wonderful. You know, I'm not trying to take anybody out of church. But I want, but but uh, but I do want you to know that no church can save you. And do you know for sure that you're saved? You know that you're born again on your way to heaven, and, and you know those kinds of things. But um, but uh, it is amazing how many how many people from from Christian churches will say, "Well, I don't know if I'm saved. I don't know for sure." But you know what? My biggest thing is I want to see them saved. Now, what they ought to do if they got saved, they ought to leave the church they're going to because obviously they're not preaching the gospel, <laughs> and go to a church that is preaching the gospel. But my point is this that. False teaching only recruit, they don't reproduce. They're not, they're not seeing people saved. They're not witnessing. And that's why many of these churches, when they go Calvinist, they start dying. That's why a lot of Presbyterian churches are full of old people. Nothing against old people. But a biblical church, I believe this, should be a sample of their community. If your community has a bunch of old people and has a bunch of young people, by the way, same thing. If they have a bunch of, you know, Asian people or black people or Hispanic people, there should be a it should be a sampling of that community. You know, I remember I was taking a sociology class when I was pastoring down in California, and uh, I had to do a project for my sociology class, and and I, I decided I was curious. I was like, what? Are, I wonder what the demographics are of this community. And I took the, looked at the found, looked at the demographics, and then I looked at everybody in our church, and we are actually spot on in percentage wise of Hispanics and uh, and and uh, African Americans and whites and uh, and even um, uh, even Asians. There was one percent Asian in the community we were in, and we had one Filipino family. And I was like, we checked the box, right? But I thought it was kind of cool. I was like, hey, we are a perfect sample of our community, you know. And um, and and all I'm saying is this: that 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 when you get to that place, it's just sort of tradition. It's just kind of what we've done, and uh, and it does it kills churches. Calvinism is fatalism. Calvinism is that God's the author of sin, and what we do doesn't matter. By the way, think about the spiritual climate today. That's God's doing. There were times in history where God wanted there to be more revival, and he sent more revival. And right now, apparently, God wants there to be a, a spiritual you know, falling away, because it was prophesied, right? Really? My Bible still says, not one that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You see, we got to get back to the Bible. 
And, uh, and so I ho hope I'll do a good job. We'll unpack the basic tenets of Calvinism. Um, the five points of Calvinism was actually developed to refute the five points of Arminianism that was supposed to be a, 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 um, uh, really was supposed to refute Calvinism. So Calvin said, oh, you got five points? We'll come up with five points. And uh, uh, many would say John Calvin himself was not a five-point Calvinist. Um, you probably make that argument, but it all derived from his theology and his teaching. But let me just ask this question, and then I'll get to you. Uh, let me ask this question. If the root is bad, can the fruit be good? No. I thought it was interesting. There's a, uh, it's a different topic, but there was a, a video that was done called um, DNA versus the Book of Mormon. And they actually proved through DNA that Joseph Smith was a liar. And many of the, uh, because they believed that there was a lost tribe of Israel that was uh, in the Americas. And uh, really done well. But many of these biologists that did the study were Mormons and continued to be Mormons, though they discredited Joseph Smith. Because they believe the current prophet is the, is the prophet that they're supposed to follow in Mormonism. But if the first prophet was wrong, could any of the succeeding prophets be right? You see what I'm saying? Hey, if the fruit is wrong, or if the root is wrong, could the fruit be right? Jesus talked about that. You see? And, uh, and that's why, you know, people say, well, you know, who do you trace your church back to? You know, the different groups, the different reformers and everything. You know what? Let's just get back to, you know, Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul being our apostle to the Gentiles. And, uh, and, uh, and, you know, we go down from there. But, uh, um, you know, that's why I don't, I'm not a reformer. I'm not a Protestant. Uh, I'm not an evangelical. You know, I, I, I go back to, you know, let's just go back to the Bible. Let that be our foundation. No creed, no statement of faith, no Westminster confession, no, no Baptist confession, no one of these other things. Let's just go back to the Bible and, uh, and stick with that. Amen. Hope this will be a help to you. Yes. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, absolutely. That's really good. Yeah. Amen. All right. Um, any questions to the introduction of Calvinism? Anything I said there? All right. Let's uh, have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you.